This talk by John Sutherland is the first of nine in the series Vimalakirti, The Dream of Awakening and the Room Where the Broken Heart Mends. It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on April 7, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Uh, from time to da- time, I get an invitation to, um, to teach somewhere else on a topic of someone else's choosing. And um, I always find those things really helpful because often, in fact, I would probably say always, <laughs> the, the question that comes, the, the topic that comes with the invitation is... Um, is framed or asked in a different way than we usually speak about things. And so th- that's great because then I have to think, well, what do I think about that? You know, what, 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 from our perspective, what would we say about whatever the topic is? So such an event is, um, is occurring this summer and the, the topic proposed is um, transforming negative patterns. Um, and I was asked to also write something, um, a, a very short piece about that. And somewhere in all of the literature around the event was the statement that Buddhist meditation was about transforming negative patterns, of meaning of thought and feeling in us. And I thought, huh, do I think that's what Buddhist meditation is about? I'm not so sure. So... I wanted to do uh, two things tonight. The first is to read what I promise you is a short piece um, in, that sort of began with that question of, well, you know, is that what, is that what um, Buddhist meditation is about? And also then um, does offer some advice from, from, our, um, from our perspective about what we might do with, uh, quote, negative, unquote, thoughts and feelings other than transform them. And then the second thing I want to do is begin uh, a, probably a series about something from the um, something from the tradition on this question. It's I always like to kind of go back and dig in and find something um, something grounded in in the ancients on a subject. And so the second part will be about that. But I will begin with the first with this um, this short piece which is, uh, begins with what I think Buddhist meditation might be for. And it's called Leaning into Life. Sometimes it can seem as though being human is a problem that spiritual practice is meant to solve. But Buddhist meditative and related practices actually have a different focus. Developing our human faculties to see more clearly the true nature of things so that we can participate in and respond to how things are in a more generous and helpful way. Our individual awakenings become part of the world's awakening. This means leaning into life, and in order to do that, we have to recognize what gets in the way. For each of us, this is likely to include certain habitual patterns of thinking and feeling in reaction to what we encounter. Meditation and inquiry are methods, just methods, not goals, ways to have direct experiences of the deepest insights of our tradition, 
of the interpermeation of all things and the way things, including our habitual reactions, rise into existence for a while and then fall away again. Everything is provisional and everything influences everything else. The implication for our inner lives is that they are seamless with the outer world and constantly changing with it. We are not encapsulated consciousnesses bouncing around in a world of other consciousnesses and inert matter, but part of a vibrant, ever-changing field that encompasses everything we can experience and more. Everything is rising and falling in this field, sometimes for a nanosecond and sometimes for a geological age, but still appearing and disappearing in an infinitely complex web of other things doing the same. To the extent that we experience in the ordinary moments of our lives, the seamlessness of our inner states and outer circumstances, we're being more realistic, more in tune with the way things actually are. From this perspective, how do we deal with the habitual patterns of heart and mind that inhibit us from having a more realistic understanding of life and a more intimate engagement with it? Perhaps it becomes less important to tackle the thoughts and feelings directly, to do something about them, than it is to see them in their true proportion. A reaction, after all, is just one among the many things appearing in the field at that particular moment, no more or less important than anything else. Simply put, how we react is not the most important element of any situation. When we fixate on our reactions, they pull us away from a primary experience of what's actually happening into a small room where how we think and feel about the experience becomes the most important thing, the thing we're now in relationship with. If you and I are having a conversation and I become angry, I might find my emotions so compelling that suddenly I'm not in a conversation with you anymore, but with my anger. What's wrong with this person? This must not stand, etc. Then, particularly if I'm involved in a spiritual practice, I'm likely to have reactions to my reactions. After all this meditation, I shouldn't be getting angry like this or this is righteous anger. Now I'm in the third order of experience, moving further and further away from the actual conversation with you. If we pull the camera back for a wider view, it's immediately apparent that a reaction like this is only one of many things rising in any given moment in the field. There's you and me and our surroundings, your mood, my capacity for misunderstanding, the temperature of the air, the sound of birds or traffic outside the window and the neighborhood beyond that, the most recent calamity in the news, and more other phenomena than we can possibly take into account. The moment is vast, with a lot of space between the things in it. The moment is generous. I don't have to zero in on my reaction to act impulsively on it or repudiate it or improve it 
all of which tend to reinforce the sense of its importance. But just accept it as one small part of what's happening. Usually that simple shift changes everything. It allows us to step out of the small room of second-order experience and back into a fuller, more realistic experience of the moment. If reaction is a move into the partial, a privileging of how we think and feel above everything else, response emerges from the whole of oneself, grounded in the whole situation, with each element assuming its true size and shape. In responding, we're not doing something about a situation, but participating in it. It's interesting that our evaluation of a habitual reaction as negative doesn't arise until the third order of experience, fully two circles away from what's actually happening. It's our reaction to our reaction to what's happening. The ancients called this putting a head on top of your head. Not only are we distancing ourselves from the original situation, but even from our reaction to the situation. That kind of distancing can be a defense against a reaction that's causing unease out of proportion to its proportion, as it were. And that's when inquiry can be helpful. The basic inquiry is, what is this? And it's a way back to what we're trying to avoid. We drop the self-centered focus of the third order of experience and re-enter the second, encountering our reaction directly, without preconceptions, and even with interest. We've picked up one thing from the field and are taking a closer look for a while. We inquire into whatever what is this evokes, thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, memories. The unexpected and surprising are particularly valuable because they come from somewhere other than what we can usually imagine. Habits can be deeply ingrained, but over time it's possible that even a quite troublesome reaction can assume its proper size and shape as one thing among many, rising and falling with everything else, no longer especially inhibiting or especially fascinating and we move closer to a life lived in response instead of reaction, closer to participation in the way things actually are. Okay, now to shift gears um, dramatically. This is either going to be something for everybody or nothing for nobody, depending on how it all shakes out. Um, I want to talk about something that, when I was thinking about, well, what does is, what, what is the tradition say? What can the tradition tell us? What, what are one of the many things that the tradition can tell us about this? The thing that kind of swam up um, to my consciousness was a quote from Vimala Kirti, which is, I am sick because the whole world is sick. So he was this great bodhisattva, and he said, I'm sick, and I'm sick because the whole world is sick. Now that seems like a very different relationship to negative patterns, right? So I want to I want to explore what might be there, what how that might be a different way of looking at it, and um, it'll take some time. But I want to begin with looking at the story of Vimalakirti as a myth, 
um, taking it as a myth and talking about some of the things that mythically lit up for me in um, rereading the story. This is um, from a, a, a sutra called the Sutra that Vimalakirti spoke, and it's um, it's 2,000 years old, and it, w- it started um, it was written in India. It's a Mahayana sutra. And it was translated into um, Chinese, I think in about the the 5th century. And the Chinese just immediately loved it, and it became one of the foundational texts for Chan in China and later for Zen in Japan. Um, Another title for it is The Reconciliation of Dualities, and that's the the big theme, is um, how do we, we, when faced with an apparent duality, how do we reconcile it? Vimalakirti himself is sort of the embodiment of that in that he's always described as um, containing with himself lots of dualities. He was called um, a rich man who gave all his money to the poor, a man who lived among family and um, employees in a great household estate but remained solitary, a man who went to the bars but didn't get drunk. So there was this sense of um, when, when we talk about dualities and we talk about pre- being presented with, with an apparent duality, we always talk about resolving it not by choosing one or the other, not by choosing A or B, but looking for C, looking for that new thing that can contain and embrace um, A and B and create something new. And so Vimalakirti himself is C. Vimalakirti himself is the reconciliation of the opposites. And um, in that way, he seemed like a great person to, you know, to, to speak to us. Um, as a layperson who was, who was profoundly uh, devoted to his, his um, path and as someone who was considered a, a bodhisattva, so, um, a lot of the commentaries talk about the immense improbability of Vimalakirti because of all of the contradictions that he, um, that he embodied. So the story, um, the story begins like this. It starts out in a, um, a garden in a town, a city in, in northern India, and the Buddha is there. This takes place during the, the lifetime of Shakyamuni Buddha. And um, this, is a, this is a beautiful park that's been given for his use by a famous courtesan of the city. And all these um, beings of all different kinds have gathered to hear him speak. So you have this sense of this vast assembly, not just of monks and nuns and laywomen and laymen, but um, gods and bodhisattvas and even dragons and phoenixes and um, all kinds of beings of all sorts who've gathered for this talk. And um, as, as he usually did, the Buddha takes Q&A at the end. And Shariputra, who's one of his main disciples, uh, many of you will know that Shariputra is the person to whom the Heart Sutra is addressed. Shariputra form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness, no other than form. So Shariputra steps forward and he says, I have a question. Um, you're saying that this world, this, this uh, existence of ours, that this is the pure land. But I don't experience it that way. I don't experience it as pure at all. I experience it as full of pain and suffering and, and, um, and horror and ugliness. And, um, and the Buddha 
apparently gets down off of his whatever seat he's sitting on and he digs his toes into the ground and as soon as he digs his toes into the ground suddenly Shariputra sees it as a pure land so here's here's the fundamental thing being set in place right at the beginning of this story Shariputra says the thing that I think feels very familiar to all of us this doesn't feel like a pure land to me what do you mean in saying that and the Buddha digs his toes in comes down into the earth and and Shariputra says oh now I see it but what happens is the Buddha doesn't transform the world he doesn't make the world pretty you know, all of a sudden, and Shariputra says, oh, now it's a pure land because it's all pretty. That's not what happens at all. The Buddha says, Shariputra, this was always the pure land. What's changed is your perception. That's a really radical thing. That's the Buddha saying, this world, as it is, this complicated, nuanced, gorgeous, difficult, um, confusing world, as it is, is already the pure land. And you don't think so because you couldn't see it. But now your perception has changed and you've seen what's already true. So here are the big questions underlying the sutra that Vimalakirti spoke. What does it mean that this world as it is, is already the pure land? This world in all of its complications. And what is the shift in perception that, um, that Shariputra experiences that enables him to know that? I'm guessing both of those things are pretty close to many of our hearts, right? Oh, I like that saying, many of our hearts. It sounds like we all have lots of hearts in us. (laughs) And many of them care about this question. Um, Okay, so... Then, the next thing that happens, or or more or less the next thing, is that the Buddha, through either rumor or omniscience, take your pick of interpretation, knows that um, Vimalakirti is sick. He's in town and he's sick. So he wants to send someone as his personal representative to offer his condolences and and his respects to Vimalakirti while he's sick. And he goes to all of his disciples and he he, he asks them, will they go for him? And every single one of them says, "Uh uh-uh, no way. I know Vimalakirti. I've had conversations with him and he freaks me out. (laughs) Everything I think I know, he pulls out from under me and I have no desire to go see him. So no, not me. And this happens over over and over and over and over again. And the Buddha goes to all the bodhisattvas and says, will you please go to Vimala Kirti and send him my respects in his illness? And all the bodhisattvas say, uh-uh, not me. He freaks me out. He is too weird. I'm not going. I don't want to, I don't want to tangle with him. I don't want to be alone in a room with him. Forget it. So finally, after um, going through dozens and hundreds and thousands of um, people, Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, says, okay, I'll go. All right, and then everybody else who said no thinks, "Ooh, this is going to be good. This is the Bodhisattva of Wisdom up against Vimalakirti. I want to see this." And so, so Manjushri takes off toward Vimalakirti's place, trailed by tens of thousands of people who want to see this conversation happen, although they don't want to have this conversation. So. 
Um, meanwhile, back at his house, Vimalakirti, by rumor or omniscience, depending on your viewpoint, knows that they're coming. And so he empties his entire house. He has every stick of furniture, every piece of art, everything got taken, removed from the house. And he asks everybody who makes up part of the household to please leave for the day. And the only thing that's left is the couch he's lying on. So when Manjushri and this great retinue get to Vimalakirti's house, they walk in and the only thing they see is the sick bodhisattva lying on a couch. So there is the stark fact with no distraction, you know, nothing to take your mind off of it, nothing to um, catch your interest, just here is the greatest apparent duality of all, a sick bodhisattva, that's not supposed to happen. Right? Um, what is that about? And there is nothing to stand in the way of their confrontation with the fact of this sick bodhisattva lying on a couch. So we'll come back to that theme of, um, of, of illness and what it means. But first, Shariputra has to ask another question. Um, and this exchange I love. So he looks around and he says, but sir, uh, the, the room is completely empty. There are no chairs for any of these people to sit on. And uh, Vimalakirti asks him, sir, I ask you, did you come for the Dharma or did you come for a seat? <laughs> and I thought, that's so great because if we ask ourselves that question, do we come for the Dharma or do we come for a seat? What, what are those seats, you know? Did we come for happiness, wisdom, peace, um, you know, what, what greater compassion, ease of suffering, you know, what are the, what are the seats we came for? And um, Vimalakirti goes through a whole list of things that you have to give up in order to seek the Dharma. He said, if you're looking for anything, and he just sort of takes everything away, right down to the Four Noble Truths. You know, if, you, if you're looking at um, the fact of suffering, the, if you're going to relinquish the causes of suffering, if you're going to cultivate the path of no suffering, then what you're seeking is suffering, its, its causes, its relinquishment, and the path. You're not seeking the Dharma. You're seeking, you put something else in place of it. You have to be willing to give up your body and your life, let alone a seat for the Dharma. Okay, so here's an interesting question. If the Dharma isn't any of the teachings of the Dharma, if you have to let all of that go because any conception, any teaching you put as your goal becomes what you're seeking rather than the Dharma. If it's not any of that, what is it? So the first thing that has to happen is you have to strip away all the things you think it is. You have to strip away all the things you want it to be. You have to strip away all the things you've been led to expect by bad teachers like me. What it might be. All, you have to let, let go of all of that and stand on the bare ground and wait. And then what comes to you when you are really on the bare ground, when you have really given given away any sort of like, you know, one foot out the door or plan B or kind of I want to sort of hold on to this idea of what I think it is. When you've given all that away, what walks towards you? That's the Dharma. That mystery. That thing that cannot be expressed or explained or anticipated or anything else, 
that's what walks towards you on the bare ground and that's the Dharma and that's what you have to be willing to seek and, and nothing short of that we'll come back next time to talk about um, Manjushri begins to question, question him about the, how can you be ill and, what, and then um, Vimalakirti says his famous I am sick because the whole world is sick and they talk about what that means and then they talk about compassion as being the, Bod- the Bodhisattva's response to that so that's to be continued thank you These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.